Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In verse 2, we see also that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Father, as we open up your word, and we open up your word right from the very first book you've given us, speak to our hearts, Lord, illuminate to us the things clearly what we need to hear and understand. Speak to us in a way you, you only can only you can do. Use your word, Lord, in a powerful way this morning in the lives of the people here. In Jesus' name, and we all said, Amen. Genesis means beginnings. What is the purpose of the book of Genesis? Genesis is the foundation of God's work as a creator and a redeemer of his creation. It all begins here in the book of Genesis. His creation, we see, begins here. Man, woman begins here. Even sin and God's remedy for sin starts in the book of Genesis. Family, culture, government, the origins of the nation of Israel, so many things start in the book of Genesis. It deals with the beginning of everything one could imagine that we see and hear or think. Except it does not deal with the beginning of God, did you notice? Why is it that the book of Genesis does not deal with who God is. Because God doesn't need to be explained to anyone. He reveals himself in the fact, in two facts. One is that he is writing the scripture. He is writing this book. Someone who writes a book does not have to explain that he is real that is writing the book. He wrote the book of Genesis. And two, we will see through his creation, his creation of what he's created as a creator reveals of who he is. So he doesn't have to spend time in the beginning of the book of Genesis saying, Hi, I'm God and let me explain who I am to you. He doesn't have to debate if, there's a, if he's real or not. He doesn't have to debate of his existence. He's always existed. The challenges of those in the minds who deliberately do not want to know that God exists. And you fight because the scripture says you say those who live in darkness deliberately in their minds says, I do not believe there's a God. It doesn't change that God still exists. And so as we look at the scriptures, we know that God is going to reveal himself as he wonderfully does through the entire scripture of all 66 books. But here in the book of Genesis, and we're going to spend a lot of time going through a lot of scripture, so hold on. I'm hoping to finish as well as I can at the very end, but take all you pencil pushers, make sure you write all the scriptures down. And I'm going to read the scriptures. I want you to leave here with one clear message. God wrote the scriptures. The scriptures are literal. It's true. They're infallible. And I don't want any question in any of your minds here listening today that God is real and he created. He is the creator. And so I'm going to deliberately read each verse so that you can make sure you go back and meditate on these verses so there's no doubt in your mind that God is real and he's true. Amen? So as we take a look at this and let me warm up and let me get going here is that the Bible, in a sense, is an autobiography of God. He needs no introduction to the book he writes, but who did God use in writing down these words? Well, here in the book of Genesis, God used a man named Moses, the author of Genesis, the author of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He used to write down for him the words that we, you and I need to read and to know and to apply. 
The scripture in Luke 24, 44 refers to the first five books as the law of Moses. Mo Moses lived 120 years. We see that in Deuteronomy 34, 7. And his life can be split up into three, three seasons of life for him. His life in Egypt was around 1500 B.C. We see another part of his life. He moved out. God moved him out of Egypt into Midian, and that took place somewhere in the mid 1400 BCs. And then finally, we see a third season of life. God moved him again. So you think you're the only one that moves all the time? God moved Moses too, and the third time was into the wilderness, and we see that in the early 1400 BC. So we see three stages or seasons of this man's life that God was preparing and to use for his purpose. And one of his key purposes was obviously to write down these first five books. So we know what Genesis means. We know the purpose. We know the author. So when was this written? When was the Genesis written? We don't know where or when Moses wrote Genesis. We can surmise that it did this with, with obviously clear guidance by the Holy Spirit, God himself actually is guiding Moses and writing actual written ancient documents from the past that God had preserved and made sure Moses had these documents to be able to take and to bring this book to closure because he did not, Moses didn't come up here until 300 years after these, some of the things that we're seeing here. So how would he have been able to get those except by God preserving ancient uh, documents and speaking to him to write these things down? But this direct revelation from God and through these historical records God handed down from, from his forefathers, we can see this, these indicators in our records in the scripture, and I will just give you only the first three of about 20 of them. Genesis 2-4, Genesis 5-1, and Genesis 6-9. We will go the remaining of those as we continue to the scriptures all the way to the very last indicator of, of Genesis 37-2. You will clearly know that God is showing to us he was the one that gave the information to Moses to write down. It's infallible because it's God's words. Amen? History. The history of Genesis unfolds in this fertile crescent of the Middle East, starting with Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq today. Many believe the book covers at least 2,500 years of human history in the book of Genesis focusing on the emergence of the Hebrew people, and we will see that very clearly. And I'm going to give you a clear book outline that I will be using for the remaining of the 50 chapters. And here we go. As we study, there's four key, two four key elements I need you to see in the scriptures for you to, to watch and follow as we study. The first is the four great events that we will see in chapters 1 through 11. The first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, we will see the formation. Then we will see the fall in verses, or chapters 3 through 5. We'll see the flood in chapters 6 through 9. And then we will see the fallout from man's rebellion in chapters 10 and 11. Those are the four great events. The formation, the fall, the flood, and the fallout from man's rebellion. The next group of four is dealing with four great men that we will study and their families. The first is we'll see, um, and we'll take that obviously from chapters 12 through 50, but the first man we will study is Abraham. Chapters 12 through 25, we will study Abraham. Then we're going to study Isaac. Chapters 21 through 28 and 35. The third great man we will study will be Jacob. Oh, Jacob. We will see chapters 25 through 37, 42 through 40, and 43, and 45 through 49. And finally, the last great man that we'll study in the family around him is Joseph. And we will take him in chapters 37. Through 50. That is the outline, 
over the next 50 plus weeks, Lord willing. Now, if he comes back and takes us all home, Roger's home, I'm good with that. But we're going to go. I, you know, part of me said here as we were studying, going, I could have started January 1st with this, but I could not time out the next book to finish the next book in a New Testament to get it done by, so I didn't want to make it all rush. So we're just going to start Genesis. I couldn't wait any longer. I've been itching for half a, half a year now to get it started. So Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can accept the, this first verse of the Bible, you should have no problem believing the rest of the Bible. Because it is the word of God. It comes from God. The biblical chronologic or the scriptures itself calculate the span of time from the creation of Adam and Eve to the presence is about 6,000 years old. So that's the span of time, 6,000 years. That is based on the scriptures that we see. And we have been taught for many years outside and inside the church that the earth is billions of years. And this goes directly against the biblical authority of the scriptures. Many of you do not believe Genesis 1, chapter 1. Do not believe it. Because they want and have been taught since the 1800s into the 1900s, and even still today, they have been taught that by scientists that the earth is millions or billions of years of old. And so what's happened is theologians and pastors have taken this man's word of science and said, how can we fit it into the scriptures to make it fit? That is grave danger and error that they have made. Because we are not billions of years old. The scriptures do not say that. And we are going to talk it in detail, I assure you. But that's the problem. When man listens to man and then tries to fit it in the scriptures versus taking the scriptures and then going out and changing the culture. This is new when it came to the 1800s and 1900s. That's when things started changing, when science thought they knew everything. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I remember the books in high school. This is truth from that science teacher. This is truth from the earth science teacher and every other mathematician and everything else. And then over the years, what has happened? My, my textbooks do not look like the textbooks today. Even the textbooks today in the, the secular system shows how much more that the creation is so much larger and more complex than they ever thought. But they all knew it back then, didn't they? There are two great errors because they've taken this philosophy from man and placed it into the scriptures as a theologian or a pastor today, there's two great errors that come out. One is the fact that they say, how do we fit in these billions of years in the scriptures? Well, there's only two places in all the scripture you can actually fit that theory of man into. And it's in Genesis 1. First one is called the gap theory. That is between verses 1 and 2. And we're going to deal with that today. But between verses 1 and 2, they believe the gap theory is where the billions of years took place. Error. Wrong. The second error comes in is if it wasn't there because it doesn't speak of that, so that some pastors are wise enough to say, well, I can't, I, can't, I can't manipulate and add to the word because it's against the word, right? If you add to the word. Because when you say billions have added between verses 1 and 2, you're adding to the word of God, and that is against the word of God. You're a great heir. The second one is, okay, that's fine, but we still have to fit it in. So what do they do? We're going to fit it in and change the definition of the word day in the verses for the six-day creation. And each day is not a literal 24 hours in their minds. We'll just say each of them is millions and billions of years. And that's how we will get it spread out into the scripture. 
that is adding to the scripture, and we will talk about that, obviously, when we finish next week, Lord willing. We'll get through each of the six day of creation, and we'll talk about day. It is a literal 24 hours in the Hebrew, in the Greek. I don't care what language you speak. It is 24 hours, period. And there's no debating on this. If you debate it, it's because you have been deceived like the rest of those who teach the fact that there's billions of years in the scripture. You've been deceived like the rest of them. And we want to help you. And I'm hoping the Holy Spirit will teach you and show you this as we go through the book of Genesis. Because this is biblical authority. Why is that important? Let's talk about the Bible a little bit because it's the start of the entire Bible. We come to the Bible knowing there is a God. There are many good and strong philosophical or logical reasons to believe in God. Yet the Bible does not argue or debate, as we said, in his existence. However, it does tell us how we can know God existed. And we are going to see that clearly in this first part of Genesis because we're going to talk about him as a creator creating the heavens and the earth. The Bible tells us we can know God exists because of what we see in the created world. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and, day, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That verse right there alone tells you and I that his creation communicates to you and I in every language in this world and speaks to the whole world about what? There is a God. So when people said, I don't know if there's a God, that is false because God uses his creation to reveal that he is real and that there is a God. They have chosen to deliberately say, I don't believe it. That's the heart of a sinful man. Paul in the New Testament, Romans 1 verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuses. So here we know in this verse alone, Paul reveals that his creation reveals his in invisible attributes of who he is, his eternal power, his wisdom that he has, he's revealed through his creation. So Paul says, no one has any excuse to acknowledge and accept there is no God. They have to accept it. It's revealed right in front of them. The creator is always greater than the creation. And so if a person rejects that, that God is, exists, it's because that person does not want to live for God. They do not want to, they want to refuse to be subjective to God, and they do not want to obey God. So if you don't want to, if you want to do your own thing, you're going to deny there's a God because that way you feel like you're free to do whatever you want to do and live however you want to live. Psalm 14.1 says, if you think that way, you're a fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. You're just saying, if there is no God, you're just a fool. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. And there is none who does good. That's what the scripture says. So when you sit there and say, oh, I want to hang out with this person who is ungodly, doesn't believe there's a God, and it's okay to hang out with him and listen to him and have a good time and fellowship, you're dealing with someone who is corrupt and abominable works are going on, and there is no good. You need to share the good news with him. You need to, you need to, re you need to reach him. Allow the Holy Spirit to work through you to reach the lost because they're in a very, very tough space to be in. So who created this world? 
And because the world shows both purpose and intelligence, it's very difficult to look at the purpose that we see around us and see the intelligence of the designer around that we see to sit there and still say there is no creator, that there is no God. That's why atheists and and agnostics still, they choose to deny there's a God, there's a creator, and they struggle within. Two, the Bible, we come to the Bible believing it is a place where God has spoken to man perfectly and comprehensively. We believe, we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. That's why we study the, the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, the entire 66 book. Because we believe the scripture is infallible and is from God and is good in every aspect of our lives. Why would we not read that? Why would you not digest that on a daily basis if everything that scripture says, if you believe the scriptures, if you believe the word, if you believe who Jesus Christ is, who is the word, who is God, who wrote the scriptures, if you really believe that, why would you not digest everything he has for you? Wouldn't you? If you really believe. I do. We believe the Bible because it must, it's because it's literal. It's straightforward. It's true. It's according to the literal context that God had written for you and I, for his people. The Bible is much more than a book. It's a library of books. It's books written in different literal, uh, literary forms. They, they take, um, you know, each part of the, the, the 66 books comes out with some historical accounts. There's, there's science, there's poetic, there's all things here available to you and I that God gives us. And the more I study the Bible, the more I realize it is so comprehensively brought together supernaturally. Anyone who's read through the entire Bible can see how supernaturally that all fits together. All 66 books. They all put come together. They were, they were, this was written through. God used 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years in three different languages. It's amazing. And not one contradiction. Not one contradiction. There's a unified theme that begins here in Genesis. The book of beginnings. And extends all the way through to the book of Revelation. The book of, 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 uh, of the glorious and the, the gracious work of redemption that we see. Psalm 119, verse 128. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. Did you hear the psalmist? He is saying, he's proclaiming the inherency of God's word. It is right. It's not wrong. And it was right concerning all things according to life. And if we don't approach the Bible this way, then we can only come to it with a very feeling approach to the text. If you do not believe this is truth written by God in literal sense, you will approach the Bible with your feelings and you will pick and choose what you believe based on your feelings of what you're willing to believe in. You will then decide what is true and what is false about the text making ourselves greater than the text itself. When you sit there and add to the scriptures, you are putting yourself in God's position and saying, I know the text better than he. You are in great danger, my brothers and sisters, if you do that. Let 
Though the teachings of scriptures may have many applications, they only have one true interpretation. Sometimes the interpretation is easy to discern, and sometimes not. But God meant something with that text revealed to mankind. We just have to be patient. God will reveal what the in one interpretation of that text is. He may not show it to you today, but in due time, he will reveal that truth to you. We believe the Bible is not a book of science. Yet where it touches science, it speaks the truth. After all, if the Bible is false in regards to science, then all the other things that we're speaking of within the Bible cannot be proved then. Then we cannot regard it as being reliable or infallible in regards to spiritual matters that we cannot prove. So when you question in your mind even a slightest bit that the Bible is not infallible, it's not from God, it is not all true, you're opening a crack for Satan to come in or the world to come in and bring in doubt just like it happened with Adam and Eve. You have to stand firm on that truth because right now I'm telling you across the, the world, many pastors and theologians and many theologian Bible in college and in universities are no longer teaching that the scripture is infallible, that it's literal. It's shocking to me to hear from people who used to be good teachers that are now saying the Bible is not true. And when that happens, you see a society go or a church body go. Three, we come to the Bible knowing the copies we have in our hands are reliable duplicates, not, though not perfect duplicates, but of exact writings which God perfectly inspired. We can know about the Old Testament by seeing incredible care and the intricate details historically of how Jewish scribes transferred over letter by letter specifically exactly without if there's one mistake they started over they had to be perfect transcriptions over letter by letter and those exact scriptures were completely demonstrated and verified and then God revealed the Dead Sea Scrolls, which then, in those discoveries, validated so many of the scriptures, like Isaiah, that, uh, that validated everything was scribed over correctly. When it comes to the New Testament, by knowing that because earlier manuscripts and the greater number of ancient manuscripts that are available to us today, the New Testament is by far the most reliable and exhaustive cross-checked ancient documents we possess. And there is no more than one one-thousandth of the New Testament text that is in question by anybody. So we can live based on the word of God. We can trust the word of God. The fourth point, we come to the Bible knowing that unique importance of the book of Genesis the book would be incomplete and perhaps incomprehensible without the book of Genesis. Because the book of Genesis actually stages everything as it rolls out all the way through to Revelation. It stages for the entire drama of redemption of man, which unfolds the rest of the books that we see. Almost all important doctrines and teachings have their foundation from the book of Genesis. The doctrines of sin, the doctrines of redemption, the doctrines of justification, who Jesus Christ is, the personality and the personhood of God, the kingdom of God, the fall, Israel, the promise of the Messiah, and so much more. Genesis shows us the origins of the universe. The order, the complexity, the solar system, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the, orig the origin of life, of man, of woman, marriage, evil, language, government, cultures, nations, religion. I mean, you can go on and on. All of that is revealed in the book of Genesis. 
And it's precisely because people have abandoned the truth of Genesis and have added and have squirreled up the book of Genesis or completely don't even read the book of Genesis and have never even studied verse by verse of the Genesis causes the problems that we see today in society. That's why our society is in disarray. Because Genesis is very important to the New Testament. If it wasn't for that, then we see in the New Testament, I, it, it's, I believe it is, 165 references in the New Testament back to the book of Genesis. So imagine those being taken out of the New Testament. They're directly quoted or they're clearly referred to in the New Testament. Many of these are quoted more than once. So we have at least 200 references directly from the book of Genesis in the New Testament. So I'm always wondered, I'm always I'm bewildered a little bit when I hear a pastor say that they do not teach any of the Old Testament. It's no good. You must study the whole scripture. He gave us the whole Bible. Jesus declared the importance of believing what Moses wrote. Remember, right out of the words we see in John 5, verses 46 and 47, God, Jesus himself, God said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? How much more clear can you be from our Savior? That we need to read those first five books, especially. Because God says, it's his words. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's philosophical importance of knowing God as a creator. There are many possible answers to the questions that many people have in life today. Where did life start? How did life begin? What's my purpose in life? Many people struggle with these kinds of questions. But what's interesting, I heard it once said, and I thought it was really cool when, when I heard this said, and I'm going to repeat it. I don't know where the source is, but it said, one day students in one of Albert Einstein's classes were saying that they had decided there was no God. Einstein asked them how much of all the knowledge in the world that they as students had among themselves collectively here as a class. And they sat there and talked and thought through of how much knowledge um, that they had collectively. And they, the students responded to uh, Albert Einstein. He says, we decided that they had 5% of all human knowledge among themselves. Now, Einstein thought in his mind, he says, that's a little generous. Don't you think that they have 5% of all human knowledge in just this class alone? But what I love is the response of Einstein when he says, Even with your 5%, is there a possibility that God exists in the 95% that you do not know? See, so many people are so concrete in their position of what they believe the scriptures say. They really think they're God. Even though as a person they possess a fraction so small of knowledge of God. Who is to know him, the scriptures say. To even have the, 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 uh, this, the, the prideful statement that they know God and how he does things and how he thinks is so prideful. That is one of the biggest sins that that person needs to deal with in their life. Because that's why we come to the scriptures, we humbly sit at his feet, because we know we don't know what God knows. We only know what God has given us, and we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us as we spend time studying it. And I love Genesis 1.1, because it refutes all of man's false philosophies and arguments that we see out there today. Concerning the origin of the earth and the, remain, the meaning of the world. And I'm going to give them to you real quick. It refutes atheism based on the fact that the universe is created by God. 
That's right in Genesis 1.1. It refutes pantheism based on the fact that God is transcendent to what he created. That completely goes against that philosophy. It refutes polytheism based on one God created all things. It refutes materialism based on all matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism based on God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism based on God, not man, is the ultimate reality. And finally, it refutes the theory of evolution based on God created all things. If everything around us, including ourselves, is a result of random, meaningless occurrences that happened over billions of years, apart from the work of a creating God, then it says something about you and I and where we are today and the value of who we are. And where we sit in the universe as a whole then the only dignity or honor we show men is pure sentimental. Because I don't have any more significance than an amoeba. Then there is no greater law in the universe than the survival of the fittest. That's where it takes people. They're saying you're an amoeba and if you stay strong enough, you can conquer and take out anyone around you so you will survive and reach the top. And when you see the flesh played out in day-to-day -day business world, the work world, the corporate world, the neighborhoods, you will see nothing but people who believe not that there is a God, not that he created all things, that they've been pulled into all of these false philosophies and arguments of man, and they've come to an existence that says, I am nothing, but I'm going to be stronger than someone else, and I will take them out if I need to. And we see the sin of man ripping through the society today. But all of that changes, right? All that changes when you do believe there's a God, that he is the creator, and that all those false philosophies are gone, and there is one truth, and that is God created the heavens and the earth. And he created you, and you're of value. And he loves you. And he has a plan and purpose for your life, and you, he is waiting to take you home and embrace you for into eternity. Changes your whole worldview. You no longer have a worldview, you have a biblical view. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is clear. It's clear teaching of God's creation and uncertainty of modern science. Some science, scientists often act certain in their knowledge, but I'm telling you, and you can prove it yourself, over time, you, they realize how much they little, little they know. They just don't know. Every time they think they've got to the end of the universe, then they find so, God gives them the ability to create something even more powerful, to look even deeper into his creation, and they go, oh my gosh, we never knew that. It's amazing, isn't it? Proverbs 25.2 says it for you. You don't have to have a telescope to know this, because God's word tells us. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. So scientists are do nothing but investigate. They, that's their glory of man. Oh, we get to investigate, we get to research, we get to go look and explore. That's just the glory of man. Yet it is most all and so humbly revealed to them by God when he decides to allow it to be revealed. I love that. Because man thinks they're going to reach the ultimate pinnacle. Tower of Babel is our example as we get to that part of the scriptures of man always thinking they can do what God is going to do. 
But in the beginning, God did a lot of things in the beginning. Even before the beginning, as we see here in these verses, God did a lot of things that you and I need to know. Yet there is much before the beginning, is it not? In the beginning, God himself was before the beginning, Psalm 93, 2. Your throne is established from of the old. You are from everlasting. God has always existed. He didn't show up when he decided to create the heavens and the earth. He was already here. He's already existed. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, demonstrates the several passages in the Scripture. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So in the beginning, God always existed. God was the three-person before the beginning, and the person started a relationship of love and fellowship that we see in John 17, 5, 17, 24. And the scripture says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. In the beginning, God gathered together in one all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10. He had an eternal purpose of heart and how this was all going to roll out, Ephesians 3.11. In the beginning, God. Before the beginning, God had a specific plan to fulfill the eternal purpose with many different aspects to reveal to us. We see the first one here is the mission of Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He says, Indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Eternal life was part of God's design, was promised before the time began. Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The mystery of the gospel, the cross, was foreordained before the ages. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. It says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory. The grace, the grace given to unto us was given before the world began. We see that in 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Believers in Jesus Christ were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In the beginning, God. At some time before the beginning, God created the angels because they witnessed the creation of the heavens and the earth. Job 38, 7. This is not some random chance of big bang, big gap, billions of years, man's philosophy. It is designed by God before the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And by faith, you and I believe what God says. That is our foundation of our life. That is our foundation for our future. And when that is questioned, my brothers and sisters, 
you will have a shaky walk on this earth because you will put your eyes on man and on this world and on your flesh and you will be left very, very discouraged. But when you come back to the foundation that God is in control of all things, every circumstance, every season of life, every move, every change, you have the assurance of God. If you're following God, if you're following him, you have that assurance. God created. 32 times in this chapter, we will see the God who is called Elohim. Ancient Hebrew word that emphasizes his majesty and power. It speaks of Elohim, speaks of two or more, or in this case, the Trinity. And God Almighty in his power is going to reveal to us his creation in front of us, the power of the creator. And God created, the word created is a word, it means bara, or bara is the ancient Hebrew word for created, and it specifically means to create out of nothing. Showing that God created the world out of nothing, not out of himself. God is separate from his creation. Unlike Eastern or um, pantheistic teachings, God can get rid of his entire creation and he still exists. He still remains. Man cannot create the same sense and the same word bara here. When you and I want to create something or fashion or form something out of existing materials, that is different than the word bara because bara is creating something out of from nothing. There were no materials. There is nothing. He created something from nothing. We don't do that. Even as wonderful and beautiful as those brownies or those, those cinnamon buns that I can see, there was a creator behind but that creator had to have material and, and ingredients to be able to create that. God, bara, created the heavens and the earth from nothing. That is amazing God that we serve. The Bible is very simple. Straightforward declares the world did not create itself or come about by chance. It was created by God who by definition is eternal and has always been. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you notice, the word heavens is plural. I see and I hear and I see people quoting, God, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That is incorrect. Because there's three heavens. I'll give you the scriptures to prove in the scriptures there are three heavens. Are you ready? First heaven is known as our atmospheric heaven that includes the air that we breathe and our surrounding on this earth. Jeremiah 4.25 is the scripture for you to hold on to. It describes the first heaven. The major prophet says in the Old Testament, I beheld and indeed there was no man and all and and all the birds of the heavens had fled. The banished disciple John, who wrote the last book, the book of Revelation, said in Revelation 19, 17, says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come. So, what we see, the birds that are able to fly within the, you know, I think it's like two, they, a lot of the scholars say about 20 feet from the ground up to the sky atmosphere that we can live within the oxygen is the first heaven. The second heaven is known as the estel heaven or stellar heaven. It's the heaven that includes the sun, the moon, the stars. Those in the atmosphere beyond the, the breathing, going out into the farther atmosphere, and Genesis twenty two seventeen proves there is a second heaven. As God says, 
Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying you, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. So he references here in Genesis that the second heaven is referencing to that place where the stars, the moon, and the sun dwell. Now that's interesting because much attention in the scriptures is given to the second heaven. And that's because that is where much of the spiritual battle that takes place between Satan and his demons, and that's where they do their work is out in that area. It's a place where spiritual warfare takes place, and it's a good way to believe that this is true, is to remember that God told Daniel in Daniel 10, verses 12 through 14. He told Daniel, he answered his prayer in the third heaven, The first day he prayed, but it was delayed by the conflict in the second heaven for 21 days, if you remember. Where are you? Where you been? He says, hey, I'm, I was coming to battle. I was ready to go. I had Mark, Mark, the archangel, got involved. I've been held back for 21 days here in this part of heaven. There was a battle going on here. Are you kidding me? but it's true. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So we see in the scriptures three heavens. That's why he said he created the heavens and the earth. And as we take a look at Scripture, God that, who created, even when you take a look in at the simple fact that God's creation is more than amazing, right? When you look around and you go, wow, look how amazing this is, and this mountaintop look and view, that is the fall that you're looking at. You're not even looking at the, the original creation in its perfect form. People say, oh, that's a beautiful light. The lion devours the guts of another animal. How beautiful and wonderful is that? That was not a part of God's design. His design we see in the end times, the eternity, the lion will be laying with the lamb. That's the original creation. So I don't know why we go and worship the fall. I didn't go to the ocean because it's so beautiful. It's, of God. it's the fall. What's so beautiful about it? Did you see the destruction that came from the hurricane? Are you kidding me? But God is going to bring it back for eternity for us. It's going to be wonderful and beautiful. But God did it all himself. You know that. Isaiah 48, 13. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. All he did is stretch out his hands. And create the billions of galaxies, the stars. We serve a big God. But God is bigger and greater than, his, than all his creation. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. God created the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. Then we must forever put away the idea anything happens by chance. Chance merely describes the statistical probability of something happening. Chance in itself can do nothing. Oh, let's just take the chance. It can do nothing for you. Let's put our trust in God in this situation. And you put your trust in everything. God created the heavens and the earth. He is the intellectual designer. And when he designed it, he never makes anything wrong. It's always right. There's no chance to it at all. 
our universe is just right universe. The universe has a just right gravitational force. If we were larger, the stars would be too hot and would burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life. If we were smaller, the stars would remain so cool, nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat and light. If the universe has just the right speed of light, if we were larger, stars would send out too much light. If we were smaller, stars would not send out enough light. The universe is just right according to the average distance between the stars. If, the, if we were larger, the, the heavy element density would be too thin for rock planets to form and there would be only be ga gaseous planets. If it were too small, planetary orbits would become destabilized and because of the gravitational pull from the other stars. If the universe has, has a just right polarity of water molecules, it would, if it was greater, then the heat of fusion and evaporation would be too great for life to exist. Too small, we would freeze up. Everything would freeze has to be perfect by God's design. I'll take it even more realistic. In the medical world, if you've ever studied the body, your body has to perfectly work together or it starts rejecting another piece of your body. You cannot replace sometimes a, one, a heart and a lung at the same time. They have to go together. They all had to be created in your mother's womb at the exact same time for it to work together. There is no chance. It's by God's design of how he created. And then finally here, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see three parallel clauses here in this verse. Now the earth was formless and void or empty. In the Hebrew words, it's tohu wat bohu. It means there's this rhythm coupled together. It means this formless, empty, and darkness describes the material substance lacking boundary, order, and in definition and life at that point. So God starts off the book of Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here's what I'm taking to give you a picture of how I'm going to start bringing this to life. And he, for some reason, he doesn't tell us why he starts in verse 2 this way, why he describes the formless or the, the without form and void and dark. He's basically telling us, here's what he's taking, and he's going to bring this into life. Many people will teach that darkness means there's some calamity that happened, that it's Lucifer's involved, and it's the fall of angels, and you'll hear all this gap theory kinds of stuff. But the darkness here is referring to an unformed, unfulfilled conditions of the materials or no life. He's bringing the materials, and he's going to reveal him pulling it all together into something beautiful. And then we see... Darkness was over the face of the deep. Can you imagine the tihom, the, the Hebrew word for just this depth of darkness or the depth that is there ready to bring, bring into life? And that third clause is the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Mayhem. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is just hovering. It refers to like a helicopter over the water and it's just hovering and the water is just rippling. That is the Holy Spirit just ready to do a work. It's also described in the, in the scriptures, an eagle over the, 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 the young and they, they, they take their wings and they hover and they're brooding, they're getting the, 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 the chicks to do something, to move and ready to do a work. Not destruction, but take and bring life into the form that we will see in the remaining of these verses of chapter 1. 
Scripture does not reveal why God chose to start his creative work with a, this, this darkness or this formless, or this emptiness. But the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters to bring new life, beauty, fullness of, of, of the emptiness, or to bring in the emptiness. And I believe in the very beginning what God has revealed to me is that God is saying, I'm taking something that has no life, that is empty, barren, dark. And I'm going to bring new work, life into existence. And he says, Corey, that is your life. I took you when you were empty. You were dark. There was no value. There was no purpose. There was no nothing. You were just existence. And I gave and I'm going to bring you. And I brought life into you. Into you. That's Genesis. I'm going to give you a beginning. Here we see the beginning. God took nothing and he's going to make something. Amen?